Let's pray. Our Lord, in our gathering, we thank you for the many gifts you have given us. We thank you for your word, because by it we learn about you and your redemptive activity in the world. We thank you, God, for redeeming us and giving us to each other as a church so that we can serve each other, so that we can comfort each other, and so that we can celebrate with each other. And most of all, we thank you for giving us your very son. Through him, we are ransomed from death, and through him, we will enjoy everlasting life with you. Father, in our gathering, we also remind ourselves that even while we enjoy your good gifts, we must continually confess and repent of our sin. Even while we agree with you that your ways are good, we still fail to keep them perfectly. As we hear your word preached this morning, convict us. Help us to move closer to you in holiness. Help us to set aside the sin that entangles us and give us an earnest desire to be more like you so that we can be imitators of you rather than the world. We praise you, God, for the way that you are using your church to bring more and more people to you. So we pray that you would bless other local churches that are laboring in your power to spread the gospel of your kingdom. Bless Canby Christian and their lead pastor, Aaron Adam. Protect them from the attacks of the enemy and use the whole church to bring you glory in all things. And bless Bethany Baptist in Portland and their lead pastor, Trevor Binkley. Help that assembly of saints to know your love for them and your purposes in assembling them together. Lord, we pray on behalf of those with needs that they are facing. Many of us have health concerns, housing needs, employment needs, transportation needs, and other needs of all kinds. So we ask God that these needs would be met and that we would all recognize that everything comes from your generous hand. Keep us from anxiety about the things of this world, knowing that you have secured eternal salvation for us. You will provide what we need here. Give us comfort as we go to you in prayer, and you shape us as we go through trials. We ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our ears this morning as we consider your word. Soften our hearts so that we will not resist the sanctifying and strengthening nature of the text today. Give our brother Nick your words so that we would be transformed and renewed in our minds and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you all. Uh, I look forward to the text that we have today, and uh, I pray that it just convicts and encourages us as we look to live faithfully in this world um, as Christians, a world that is becoming more and more, uh, it seems, hard to live in faithfully. There are many things in life that are costly, from having kids, to owning a house, to just being engaged in relationships. These things all come at a great cost. One of the greatest costs that I have incurred in my life was moving my family from central Washington to Portland. In central Washington, we had spent four years living at a boys' ranch on 500 acres with nine other families, so we had a lot of room to roam. We had developed deep relationships. 
we had partnered with others in ministry. And at that time, we had two kids, and they were connected in their church and in our church and with friends, and it was a good season of our lives. But it was clear that God was leading us and me to attend seminary, and the greatest growth we, I realized, would come from attending in person. And so the move that we made was costly as we left a peaceful, secure life for the big city. Our new life was full of uncertainty, tight finances, even tighter living as we now lived on a busy street in a little apartment. Our family had uh, to rebuild, right, from the ground up, relationships, everything. Thankfully, God was faithful to accomplish that in our life. And so what came at a great cost was very beneficial to our family and our growth in the Lord. For our lives to grow in the way that God has intended us to requires that a piece of us dies. This this is how God works. For growth and change to take place, death must occur. Something has to die. It is painful. It is unpleasant, but the end result is that we are changed into the image of God. Where once there was the ugliness and and pain of sin, the result is a beauty that pleases God, and we begin to look more and more like the one who saved us. This morning, we come to Joshua chapter 5. And I would encourage you to consider this question of the text. What is something that God is removing from your life so that he can grow you? Let me say that again. What is something that God is removing from your life so that he can grow you? As we've gone through the first four chapters of Joshua, we are reminded that the people of Israel's journey is very similar to the life of a Christian. The the people of God in the Old Testament are not very different than the people of God in the New. Israel had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years due to their hard-heartedness. They did not trust God because of a lack of trust. Because of a lack of trust in God, God prolonged their wandering. In chapter 4 of Joshua, they had been saved from this wilderness of wandering through a dramatic parting of the Jordan River. This act of God had, as Tyler pointed out, mirrored their entry into the wilderness 40 years earlier with the parting of the Red Sea. God was step by step saving his people from the suffering that they had endured and was giving them the land that he had promised to them. This land was that now inhabited by enemies, by foreigners, by strangers. Much like our Christian life, though God has promised us much, his kingdom and his kingdom is expanding, we are caught in conflict after conflict. The resistance of the enemy continually pushes against us. And not only that, we have our own sin issues to deal with. But we can know that without a doubt, God will fulfill his promises. He has not just saved us and left us alone, but calls us to continually lean in to him in repentance and faith. 
the people of God can hope in God and have been set apart for the work of God. Here's the big idea uh, of Joshua chapter 5. In salvation, God restores his people and gives them hope for his continued work. God, in salvation, God restores his people and gives them hope for his continual work. God has saved his people from the wilderness. And what we will see this morning is that salvation he gives them is a process. The refining of the Old Testament people for the holy purposes of God was not just a singular event, right? It, wasn't, it didn't just happen. No, what we see is that it's a process. And we can know that our salvation, while instantaneous, while we were saved, we were brought from death to life in a moment, we also must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So let's now read Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And uh, for those of you who are note takers, this is the first point of the, uh, the sermon. The sign of salvation. The sign of salvation in verses 1 through 9. Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1. As soon as all of the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west all of the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over. Their hearts melted and there were no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All of the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all of the people who had come, or though all of the people who came had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. The crossing of the Jordan led to the fame of God growing. His popularity and his, uh, I mean, he was probably a hashtag, right? Like, God works. Check out Israel's God. The land uh, knew who Yahweh was. And the kings, they were afraid of him. They were afraid of God. This is a very interesting observation of our text, that, that, that the kings of Canaan stood in awe of God. But guess what that fear led them to? Not to repentance, 
but to cowering. In the coming chapters, as as Israel invades the land, we don't see merciless genocide, but the judgment of God on hard hearts. The kings of the land were hard-hearted towards Yahweh. This response by the kings gave the people of Israel actually space to do what we see coming in the next uh, verses of our text. It's also interesting to note that Israel saw the power of God and, and responded. Israel saw the same power. They experienced the power of God, and their response was not cowering in fear, but obedience in fear. The people of God responded to God's power and obedience. Now, the repeated idea, if you didn't pick up on it in these verses, is circumcision. It is overwhelmingly mentioned in these nine or eight verses nine times. In verses two through nine, it's mentioned nine times. God commanded Joshua to circumcise all of the men who had been born while Israel wandered in the wilderness. All of the men who had been born and were of fighting age were to be put under the knife. And so, excruciatingly, using flint knives, the men were circumcised. Now, it's hard to know exactly how many people this was, but estimates are that it's over a million. And so it was so many that the author of Joshua noted that this place is called Gibeath Haraloth, which if we were Hebrew, we would know means hill of foreskins. Yes, I mean, the author of scripture has humor, (laughs) believe it or not. So this is quite the event quite the event, and I'll do my best to keep it serious. Up to this point in uh, the narrative of the Old Testament, all we knew about the uh, people of Israel as they wandered is that they were hard-hearted, right? We, we heard earlier from Psalm that highlighted their hard-heartedness, and that generation that died in the wilderness did so because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, They lacked any fruit of of life that had been turned over to the Lord. But what we see here in Joshua is that their rebellion, their resistance to God, extended all the way to the sign of the covenant, circumcision. God had commanded very clearly that his people were to be different. And that difference was to be expressed physically in the sign of circumcision. If you have your Bible, uh, turn to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. It's, It's here in Genesis 17 that we see the very foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. God was going to bless Abraham. He was going to make Abraham and his descendants a great nation. The stipulation though, is that Abraham had to, and all of his children, and their children, and their children's children, had to circumcise their boys. That was the the stipulation on this covenant. And so let's together read verses 7 uh, through 11 of Genesis chapter 17. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 7 through 11. And I will... Establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring 
after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So what we see here in Genesis 17 is that God will act on behalf of Abraham. He will bless him. He will give him a land for an everlasting possession. Abraham's part, the stipulation of the deal, you need to believe God, one, but that belief plays out in circumcision. Obedience to the command demonstrated that that Abraham and his children and their children's children believed God. It demonstrated that they believed he would uphold his end of the covenant. And it was a visible, outward sign of what they held to be true. That the land would be theirs. That they would possess this land and live in it. And that God had given it to them. But it wasn't their obedience that would coerce God into acting. It wasn't their act that then caused God to act. No, their obedience was a response to God's faithfulness. And that's very clear in Joshua. God had already saved them. And they responded. The people had been dramatically saved from the wilderness, and their response was obedience. Obedience to the commands of God comes from his faithfulness, not from our own. And in circumcising the men of Israel, the people are demonstrating their faith in God's faithfulness. God, you have provided for us. You have saved us, and we believe that you have given us this land, and we will walk in obedience. That's what they're communicating with um, circumcising these men. Now, this was no small response, right, as you can imagine. To perform minor surgery on this many people is significant. It presented risks, one of which is they were in enemy territory, There was no river stopping the enemy from attacking them, and all of their men of war were healing. Circumcision is violent, it's bloody, it's messy, and it is unpleasant. In all honesty, it probably should be added to the list of things you don't talk about at dinner, right? God, (laughs) politics, money, and circumcision. I'm I'm making an appeal to add that to the list, though we don't have that problem. Now I've ruined all your Sunday afternoon dinners, but. (laughs) It is a momentary mutilation of the flesh, a a cutting off of the excess, and it is shameful. And for for grown men to go, go through this, there was no doubt a great amount of shame that would have been associated with this act. But look at verse nine again of Joshua. Because they acted in faith, 
God says, today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. The reproach of Egypt had been removed. Through the shameful act of circumcision, the reproach of Egypt was taken away. No longer did the men of Israel look like the place that they came from. They didn't look like an Egyptian. Circumcision at that time was a Jewish practice. The rest of the world, uh, to our modern knowledge, did not participate in this. They did not do this to their children. And so one could visibly then see the difference between a Jew and a non-Jew. That old life that the people had left behind in Egypt was no longer with them. It was being systematically removed and surgically removed. And it was not pleasant. The, the covenant was once again being honored. And obedience was being practiced. Now all wrapped up in this idea of reproach, we have to acknowledge that this is much more than a visible difference. This is much deeper than just a skin issue. For 40 years, Israel had wandered in the wilderness. The rest of the world had watched. And we are even told that in Moses' interactions with Yahweh that the people of the world were, and the nations surrounding them were kind of mocking God. They were laughing at him like, oh, look, this Yahweh has saved his people out of Egypt? And promised them something, and it's been, what, 38 years, and he hasn't delivered? The world noticed what God had not yet done. And all of this was being removed following the crossing of the Jordan and through obedience in circumcision. The people's obedience demonstrated their faith in the plan of God, a willingness to submit to the point of bodily harm for the purpose of walking in the commands of God. And, though moment, and, and through momentary shame, God removed 40 years of hopeless wandering. The circumcision was a sign of the covenant for the Jew. For the Christian, we do not submit to bodily harm as a demonstration of our obedience Circumcision physically set the Jew apart as one who had been claimed by God. It wasn't long, though, just actually a few hundred years before the Jews began to realize that they needed more than just circumcision. Look at Jeremiah chapter 4, just the first phrase. This, this is an indictment that Jeremiah is speaking to the people of Israel and he's saying, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. You see, it wasn't long before Israel realized, and the, the prophets and, and God knew, that the circumcision of the flesh is not what truly was needed. It wasn't the body that need pruned, but the heart. You see, circumcision was only a picture of what was needed internally. And while the body can be changed physically and altered physically, it is far beyond the skill of man to change the heart. A changing of appearance did nothing to change a person standing in the eyes of God. 
the New Testament picks up on this idea and makes it very clear. Romans chapter 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What makes a person one of God's people is not what happens outwardly, but inwardly. The Bible describes our hearts as needing trimmed, as needing pruned, as having excess that needs cut away and done away with. If you are here and you do not see yourself as a Christian, this is how the Bible describes you. This is the reality of your life. Your heart is wicked and in need of a God to do supernatural surgery on it. And in and of ourselves, we are a reproach to God. Our hearts are wicked and deceitful. Our sin and our shame is gross and embarrassing. It is unpleasant to look on. If we look at ourselves in our hidden, dark, secret places that we keep from others, we know this to be true. As a a society, we have uh, been working from day one to cover our shame, right? From Adam and Eve on, to cover our guilt, to hide who we really are. Even our society knows that. They want to push against it, right? We we, we are trying to flaunt our sin more and more, but no matter how hard we try, we cannot cover up the sin of our nakedness. Even this week, in the news, as the Boston Celtics punish their head coach, coach for what we would call sin, there is no doubt in my mind that he and others are feeling the sting of reproach, the sting of shame. We do this too. I do this. You do this. We have tried to hide our sin to keep it from the eyes of others. To my own shame, I know I do this. My family can tell you, Dad, you act a little different sometimes than others might think you act. Whether it's images that we look at on on screens, whether it's gossip and slander that take place when out of the earshot of somebody else, or, or even just our own hearts that can't stand to be around certain people, We are an embarrassing mess that needs to be cleaned up by Christ. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 5 tells us to take that drastic action, that that we should seriously uh, take our sin, to cut it off. So if we are struggling with something, we are to give no quarter to that sin, but to violently remove it. And this is impossible for us to do on our own. It's like, well, great, Nick, what, what hope is there? What hope is there truly? Well, Colossians 2, 11 through 15. In him, speaking of Christ, also, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of, the, of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Look at this imagery. Look at the imagery that we see here in Colossians and how it ties into our text in Joshua. Our hearts are cleansed through Christ. On the cross, it was him who was mutilated. He was cut off from the Father, bloodied and made a reproach so that we could be made alive. How great a savior that he would subject himself, that he would subject his flesh to that. And friend, this is our hope. This is your life. You no longer need to hide in sin and shame. You no longer need to cover it. For if you are in Christ, you are no longer a reproach and you can lay your sin right at the feet of Jesus. The removal of your sin isn't really an act of you. It isn't something that you do. It's God's. And through Christ, he does and has done that work. So don't hide your sin attempting to conquer it alone. Attempt, thinking that I can just deal with this. I don't have to really pull it out into the light. And all the while incurring more guilt and more shame and more secrecy. No, drag it into the light and let the gospel remind you of your life that you have as a new creation. Celebrate that you are in him. And because of that, new life is yours. And you can flourish in him. Look at verse 15 of, of, this, of Colossians. Jesus made the spiritual powers of this world shameful. Uh, he disarmed them and put them to open shame. That same idea of reproach. The idea of, of reproach, of sin, is all-encompassing. It, it isn't limited to what is done in secret in our lives, but also what has been done to us. What the world, what life has inflicted on us. A broken world leaves many of us with, with wounds of sin, that have been committed to us and against us, whether it's abuse that we've suffered in our relationships, abortions that were maybe forced on us, or, or our words that are simply twisted to our own detriment, relational brokenness, whatever it is or was at salvation, the promise of God is that your guilt and your shame can be wrapped up and placed at the foot of the cross. No longer must it define who we are and who you are. Now, it will probably never go away. But instead of it hampering your life and your relationships, it can be used to grow you into the image of Jesus. We mu you must no longer hide from it. Instead, you can work towards confidently living your life in Christ, knowing that Jesus has completely dealt, it, dealt with it. 
He was the one who was cut off. He was the one who suffered the shame and the reproach. His flesh was mutilated so that you can live. If you'd like to talk to me more about this or even uh, one of the elders here, uh, I w- I'm very available. We are very available to you. I would love to talk with you and, and hear your story and, and, and think through how Jesus Christ has freed you from the guilt and shame of sin in your life, of guilt and shame that you know far better than anyone else. What we are seeing here in Joshua <clears throat> chapter 5 is a great picture of salvation. For, for the Israelites, it was a process, right? Crossing the Jordan, making altars, circumcision, what we're going to see, celebrating Passover. It was all a process. For us, it's instantaneous. It happens in a moment. We are brought from death to life and given a new heart and new life, constantly pressing towards and expanding the kingdom of God in the promised land. Christian, you have been sealed by the sign of an eternal covenant through Christ. You have a new heart. You have new affections. Let sin be so distasteful to you and a reproach to you that it brings and causes you to stay far from it. And part of that is recognizing what it actually is that Christ has done what he actually went through for you. Find others then who, are, uh, who recognize this as well in their own life, who are part of this community and, and, and don't want to shame you for your sin, but want to help you stay away from that shame, stay away from that guilt, but also hold you accountable in how you view it and how you act upon it. Don't make excuses for it. Don't, don't blame your sin, the, 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 the sin that you carry, the shame on your personality. Don't blame it on your childhood. Don't blame it on life circumstances or on your disposition. Well, I'm just this way. I can't help it. No, cut it out. Get rid of it. Run to the cross. And it is there that you can celebrate what Christ has done in your place. So this leads us to the second point today that we see. The hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. And we see that in verses 10 through 12 of Joshua. Let's read that together. While all the people were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. The uh, circumcision took place on the 10th day of the month. It happened to coincide with the celebration of Passover, which was on the 14th day of the month. Interesting side note that on the 10th day of the month, per Levitical law, was the day that they were supposed to pick out the sacrificial lamb. So instead of that, they they had a circumcision party. It's an interesting note, and I think that outside of the, the, like, whoa, 
uh, there's some depth there. So on the 14th day of the month, they participated in Passover. So four days, the people rested, healed, and then they celebrated. And in celebrating Passover, the people put the hope of their salvation in the past work of God, but also looked forward to the future work of God. Passover is once again another Jewish tradition, part of the covenantal process given to Moses uh, as they were rescued out of Egypt 40 years earlier. It reminded Israel that God had saved them from Egypt. God was a God who saves. Here in Joshua, the celebration of it marked another end of wandering, the end of wandering in the wilderness the end of God sending manna or bread from heaven, right? it, it, It ends here. God was fulfilling his promises. The people ate of the produce of the land that year. And they ate there from that year and every year following, we're told. So as Israel began to respond in obedience the promises of God continued to roll out. Israel was celebrating the past. They were celebrating the future or the present, and they were celebrating future salvation of God that God had given them in this land. In the past, he had saved them from Egypt and he had sustained them in the wilderness. In the present, he brought them safely over the Jordan and had given them favorable report of the city of Jericho. And in the future, he would give them fully this land for an inheritance. They were reaping the benefits of salvation. Over the last few chapters of Joshua, we've been looking at the ceremonial cleansing of the people as they prepare to take over the land of Israel, the land of the promised land. And in celebrating the Passover here, the people of Israel continued to place their hope in God's salvation. The past provisions of God here with manna had ended and the future provisions of God were right before them. I wonder if you and I take enough time to celebrate the provision of God. As Christians, we celebrate Passover by participating in communion. And at mission, we do this weekly. And this is a place, communion is a a place and a time where the past, the present, and the future of our salvation all come together. And we must not forget that. Through Jesus Christ, we have been saved, and it is his body and blood that are represented in communion, and we can celebrate the present too, right? Our present salvation, our present life in Christ, and it is Jesus who has saved us, we display our unity, our present unity in it. But what I think we should think even more deeply about is the future hope that is on display in communion as well. Through a simple act of bread and and, uh, juice, we proclaim a future hope. In Joshua... Israel was beginning to reap the benefits of salvation of God, but they didn't fully see them yet. They didn't fully understand them. They were promised a land and cities, but they had none of it. 
There was much that God had promised them that they could be hopeful for. God has made us promises too. God has promised us much that has yet to come. And in communion, we anticipate that the promises of God will happen and that are happening and have happened and will happen to a greater degree. So what are those future promises? Well, this is not an exhaustive list, but here's four of them. John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Do we use communion to recognize the abundant life that we have in Christ and that we'll have even more tomorrow and the next day and the next day? John 4, 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I, I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do we use communion and that time specifically to quench our thirst for eternal life? To recognize that he, what God has done through Christ and has taken our guilt and our shame and replaced it with life? Uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do we use communion to bear the light burdens of Christ? to thank him for the weight that he has given us. Or Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do we use communion to anticipate that day, to look forward to when I don't have to struggle with my flesh and continually have it being removed, but can be, but am fully a new creation in the presence of Jesus. Each of these guarantees are reasons that we as new, the new covenant people of God can celebrate. Each of them are reasons that we can give thanks. Jesus has not left us alone, but has given us himself. And communion is a time when we can proclaim and remember the work that God has done and that it is that we are in Christ and he is in us as new creation. Because of this reality, because of the promises, the promises of Christ are ours, we can know that this is true. Our hearts have been cleansed. The flesh has been cut away and is being cut away. And it is in the body and blood of Jesus that our lives now have purpose. One way that, that we can do this and to deepen our importance uh, of an understanding of what is taking place with communion is to meditate on it throughout the week. I, I would encourage you to take time each week to think about this reality, the reality of what is taking place in communion, the reality that we've just talked about, especially Saturday nights as you prepare for church on Sunday. Go to bed pondering the new life that you have in Christ. Your old life has been cut away and you can anticipate his future grace in your life through communion. 
spend time remembering and hoping for the promises of God. Communion is a means of grace in our life, and we ought not take it lightly. God uses it in some mysterious ways to grow our faith and to proclaim the gospel to others. All right, back to Joshua. Joshua, uh, the final verses, we see uh, kind of this uh, addendum, right? It doesn't necessarily go with our verses, but it definitely looks forward to what's coming next. We see the victor of salvation in verses 13 through 15. Uh, In these final three verses of our text this morning, Joshua continues to get confirmation on the next move that he is to make. As the people healed and were done celebrating, we come to verse 15. Let's read that together. Verse 13. Uh, Verse 13 of Joshua 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for your adversaries? And he said, No, but I am a commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So Joshua was out, out scoping out the city of Jericho. Right? He's the commander. He's the, he's the leader of the people. He knows that this is going to be the first city to fall. Now, he didn't know exactly what the plan would be. He knew his spies had guaranteed a lady in the, that lived in the wall safety. Um, and so he was out here doing his due diligence, right? I can picture him army crawling through the grass, you know, scoping out the city, getting it, it ready. Like, okay, what's our strategy here? This is a big city. Uh, he's, he had many years of experience doing this, right? He was Moses' right-hand man. He knew what needed to be done, and he's actingly, acting in good intelligence, right? He's acting intelligently, taking, doing his due diligence. What he doesn't expect is what he finds, a stranger that greets him with the sword, a sword that is drawn. He sees what is a, a warrior of a man standing before him, and Joshua questioned him, are you for us or for our enemies? It's an odd answer, right? This being gives an odd answer. His simple answer is no, right? Okay, well, what, what am I dealing with here? He goes on to explain that he is the commander of the armies of the Lord, and he has now come. And it was at this point that Joshua worshiped the being who doesn't return him away, but accepts this worship. And in in an image that sends us back a few years to Moses at the burning bush, the man tells Joshua to remove his sandals for the ground he's standing is holy. It is set apart. It is different. Now, who is this being? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. The first would be an angel, and the second would be, just a, would be a pre-incarnate Christ. And it's the second option where I find myself, right? I see this as a a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Why? Because he accepts the worship and tells Joshua to remove 
his sandals as God did at the burning bush. The being is worshipped. He accepts it, and Joshua removes his sandals being in the presence of the divine. This holy figure's curt answer to Joshua's question helps us understand a little bit more about the scenario, right? He's not there to pick sides, right? Who's bigger? Who's better? Who's stronger? I'm, I'm on their side. That's, that's who I'm teaming up with, right? Like, uh, he's not Kevin Durant. That's what he's saying. He's no snake. Uh, what he's saying is that you're on my side. Catch the imagery. Joshua, I'm not on your side. You're on mine. You can scout the city. You can have the best plans that you desire, but at the end of the day, I'm here and I'm going to win. Not you. God will fight for his people and Joshua can watch as the plan of God rolls out. What a good reminder. What a great reminder. You and I don't dictate the plans of God. Joshua was not in charge. He made plans. He was doing his due diligence, right? We can scope out. We can make our strategies for what our next move is. What am I going to do in the future? But at the end, very end of the day, God is going to do his thing. Our Christian life is filled with many daunting Jerichos in front of us, moments of battle and struggle. And we must remember, first, that our battle is not against a flesh, right? Flesh and blood, Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against Satan and his minions. And the battle is already won because God is going to fight. What a good picture. What a good reality that we as Christians find ourselves in. It is his plan that will be implemented. Our job is to join him as he marches to victory. So as we come to the end of our time this morning, I'd, I'd like to revisit the question that I asked at the beginning. Christian, where is it that God is removing, what is it that God is removing in your life and calling him to trust, trust in the fight? Where is it that, what is it that God is removing in your life and calling you to trust him in the fight? Definitely, be wise, do your part, make a plan, get ready for battle, but what would it look like if you gave him, if you gave God the ability to fight on your behalf and you joined him in that struggle? With a new heart, with your flesh removed and being removed, it is possible. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that you are doing in our hearts, Lord, as we long for the day to become more like, to be more like you, and we are becoming more like you. We pray that even now, this morning, that you would, would, would just continue to prune away the flesh of our lives, the sin that we carry around. 
And as we come to communion, we pray, Lord, that that would be an ever-present reality for us. Amen.